0: But now we're on the second half of chapter 6 of Galatians, and we're really following the Apostle's punchline to this message. Just a, a little recap as to what the journey has been so far. Galatians stands out as having a letter with a different character than any of other, Paul's other letters. It's an emergency letter. So... It was written maybe when the churches in Galatia were two, three years old and Paul was getting reports that seriously problematic doctrine was being preached, fake doctrine, and was being accepted. And so you have the sense that he, with a lot of frustration and passion He gets down and writes this letter and there's no errors and graces straight to the point and he's pretty brutal in his language which is quite quite extreme compared to um, the sense we get or the the style we get from his other letters. Paul was often direct but when it comes to uh, the letters of the Galatians perhaps not quite this direct. He was addressing the problem of false teaching that was being preached by a group called the Judaizers and it seems that they were preaching some kind of strange blend of Jewish tradition (coughs) coupled with faith in Christ and the frustration that you can feel in Paul's letter is that the Galatians had swallowed this without really realizing its implications Um, somehow there was this aspiration to cling to the practice of circumcision and i think it was ian in in one of his ministries was reflecting on um what it must have been like to be a brother where this was being preached and you know this is seriously um demanding stuff particularly if you're a brother and they somehow seem to think, well, we'll embrace this. And in the process, it's, a, it's a, you know, a badge of honor and we'll glory in it. And Paul is saying, no, no, this is so wrong. It's got to stop. And he's very passionate about, about it. He's also talking about how this is not just foreign to the Christian message. It actually undermines the Christian message because we're now talking about salvation by grace through faith on the basis of what the Lord Jesus Christ achieved in his uh, life, death and resurrection. And the implication of having to cling on to Old Testament Jewish tradition was that this work that Christ has done was somehow inadequate. And that may not have been preached, but it's the implication of what was being preached. And there's um, maybe a subtlety going on and um, the Galatians unwittingly, by accepting one thing, were unwittingly undermining um, what is a fundamental uh, essential of gospel truth. So that's the background and you just get this sense of urgency, this sense of passion in Paul's language that he uses, and also a a kind of provocative intolerance, Um, who's bewitched you, (laughs) Um, language like that that's being used, which if you're a, a brother or sister in one of these four churches that he was writing to, I can just imagine sitting up and listening. You know, this is pretty brutal, direct language. I need to pay attention to it. In the process, we've kind of gone through a series of arguments that Paul is outlining and the first I've made a note of I don't know nine or ten of them the first is the reality of the only true gospel and this is what the Galatians um, what he preached to the Galatians and what they accepted Um, and he kind of goes back to the beginning and talks about the reality of the only true gospel he feels compelled to talk about his own credentials as an apostle. And you know, these Judaizers perhaps were convincing, they um, had a convincing argument and they were eloquent. And you know, who was Paul to come and, and counter what was being said? So, there's a, an element of um, him laying down his credentials as an apostle and making the statement that he also was accepted by the other apostles because he was apostle an apostle um, with a different context he wasn't uh, one of the 12 with the lord face to face so he had to work hard to demonstrate to the other apostles that his calling was genuine and that he had indeed had his own first-hand encounters with the risen lord jesus christ Um, and therefore laying down his credentials as an apostle making it clear that he'd been accepted by the other apostles, he is therefore stating the authority and the integrity of his message. Very key in the letter. Um, it's a letter that's full of doctrine, um, essentially, because that's what he was writing the letter to address. So laying down the basis of salvation by faith, and even going back to Old Testament Um, Abraham story where faith was credited to him as righteousness so this is in his argument to demonstrate that salvation is only by faith and not through any adherence to the law he describes the law as a curse and the redemption that is the Christian message is redemption from the curse of the law he talks about becoming children of God um, being released from the shackles of sin and that's the inevitable consequence of being under the law and a celebration of freedom in Christ and the contrast is shackled to the rules and regulations of the Old Testament law versus the freedom from those shackles, and it's not freedom to do what they like; it's freedom to do what they ought to do. Um, something that sin and the bondage of Old Testament law inhibited them from doing. So there's this argument about being unshackled from the law and be given being given uh, freedom to serve Christ the way. Christians were to serve him. Um, He talks about the joy of a fulfilled life uh, lived by disciples who are living in what he describes as in step with the Spirit. So it's not just a release from the law and a a liberation, but it's um, a new life that is facilitated by the presence and the direction of the Holy Spirit. The consequence of living in step with the Spirit is joy and fulfilment and transformed lives, so no longer characterised by sin and its consequences but rather bearing fruit. And we have that lovely description of the fruit of the Spirit. And these things were not Natural for the galatians or any christian they were the consequence of walking in step with the spirit consequence of living our lives by the spirit as we start to um, display the fruit of the spirits in our lives which are in complete contrast to the sin that would characterize lives that had not been transformed In the previous section, so the end of chapter 5 and the first half of chapter 6, which David dealt with last week, um, it's a, to cultivate a healthy view of ourselves and each other. And the consequence of that being objective about ourselves and our dependence on Christ or dependence on the Holy Spirit is this lovely relationship that we can have with each other as brothers and sisters, serving together as the people of God. So it's a a wonderful sequence of arguments that stems from Paul pointing out how outrageous their acceptance of this this false teaching from the Judaizers. Um, Emerging from that is this systematic teaching that brings them to the point of brothers and sisters serving together in Christ with a freedom from the law and all that implies. So there's the background, let's go to Galatians 6 and we're going from 11 to 18 and it's really Paul's concluding remarks. He says, verse 11, see what large letters I use as I write to you in my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ not even those who are circumcised obey the law; yet they want to be circumcised that they may be boast about your, that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, nor uncircumcision means anything; what counts is a new creation peace and mercy to all who follow this rule even to the israel of god finally let no one cause me trouble for i bear on my body the marks of jesus the grace of our lord jesus christ be with your spirit brothers amen i have just um, a series of key points some of them don't even require any further comment but to me they summarise what Paul is saying in this punchline to his letter. The first point is the cross of Christ had become central to Paul's theology and I I use the word become as though it was a progressive thing and I think think it was. the Apostle Paul, in his unique set of circumstances, um, came to know the truth over a period of time. And what is very clear when we get to Galat- his letter to the Galatians, and particularly the conclusion of the letter to the Galatians, is there's, there's all kinds of doctrine going on. Some of it is false, um, but the real test here is to make the cross of Christ Um, central and the cross of Christ is a doctrine and from it spring all other doctrines and if we are to understand the doctrine of the cross of Christ then things like the need for um, following a law be that circumcision or something else doing good things if we have the doctrine of the cross of Christ central to our theology then those things just, they don't attach the contrary to it. And it's as though Paul is saying, in all of these things that I've discussed in my letter, in these things that I've heard are going on, central is the cross of Christ. It occurred to me that, I I think I'm right in saying this, because I can't imagine Paul wouldn't have talked about it had it been his experience. But I don't think Paul witnessed the sufferings of Christ. Uh, Clearly he wasn't an apostle at that point, but he was a a contemporary, so he would have been alive at that point. Um, It just struck me about the wisdom of God and the Holy Spirit in having an apostle who was such a high-profile teacher, who himself, although he had his own personal encounters with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, that's undeniable. Um, He hadn't seen himself the sufferings of the Lord. Peter, in his um, first letter, describes himself as um, a fellow elder, an overseer in the churches, and a witness of Christ's sufferings. And we might find ourselves a little bit envious of that. You know, Peter and the other apostles with the exception of Paul could have um, reflected on their own personal experience of observing the sufferings of the Lord and if this is, as we're saying central central to our doctrine, then what a benefit they had of being able to remember those things firsthand. but the the New Testament is clear that even those of us who believe but have not seen Um, can have a very real experience and this was the case for the Apostle Paul and I I just add that as a a bit of a tangential thought he has great credentials as an Apostle but when it came to his appreciation of the sufferings of Christ which are central to his doctrine he's in the same boat as us (laughs) he was dependent on uh, the Scriptures on the Holy Spirit making these things real to him. I think a key thing in the problem of the Galatians was that the cross of Christ was no longer central to their doctrine. And it, it raises a challenge in my own life and I think in, in our, um, what we focus on as a church and churches of God is how central is the cross of christ in our own doctrine and often we might pick doctrine and 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 this is good because it's how we learn but we might we might pick a a doctrine that is um, clearly part of the whole council of god but we don't necessarily link it back to this central doctrine of the cross of christ and it's a dangerous thing because uh, we can get consumed by um, truths and somehow disconnect them from this core teaching, which is um, Christ and his sufferings. (coughs) Excuse my voice. And and that's the the problem that the Galatians had got into. They were entertaining other things and not aligning them with the core truth of the cross of Christ. Had they done so, they would have realised, you know, this is false teaching and dismissed it. And it's a, it's the acid test for any teaching that we are given. How, how does it align and integrate to the central truth of the cross of Christ? It's a... It's a helpful thought as we consider our own teaching as Churches of God and the things that we do but it's also a helpful thought for me personally because how core in my daily experience is the cross of Christ. We've talked about celebrating the remembrance every week and the wisdom there was in, by God initiating that to keep it front and centre of our feelings. There's a story told. I forget the name of the guy, but he was a great, renowned preacher, probably 18th century type preacher, and he'd been at it for a long time. And he was delivering a message, and an old lady came to him afterwards and said, "Your your preaching is missing the cross of Christ." And he was gobsmacked. And what what you know? And he the story goes that he he. Parks himself for days. He goes into his study, shuts the door, and no one sees him for days. And they're really worried, you know, what's going on. And his story goes he just had to immerse himself in the truths of the cross of Christ and learn the lesson that the old lady had taught him that unless, you know, we have these continually before us and integrated into all of the things that we teach and we say then our ministry and our preaching will um, somehow be limited Um, the challenge is to focus ourselves, to meditate ourselves and this is the stuff of remembrance preparation on the, the sufferings of the Lord Jesus and what was going on with the cross, at the cross of Christ there are four things that I find myself focusing on and I think I've delivered this ministry in the past and described a gem with different facets in the setting and we don't appreciate the gem unless we see it in its setting and you don't appreciate a gem just by looking from one perspective and there are many many perspectives and we can even allow the Holy Spirit to Steer our imagination as we reflect on these things, but there 's four facets that of the cross of Christ that I find myself revisiting regularly. one that 's most obvious is it it 's the place where the worst of man 's sin comes out they The expression was used in the remembrance I think they murdered the Son of God and the way they did it was the cruelest of things and that's one element of what was going on at Calvary and, and it's God teaching us about the worst of man's sin, an essential thing for us to focus on. Another facet, facet is much more difficult to get our imagination around and it's the unrestrained wrath of God. These things were going on in parallel with each other And hard to, as we read the gospel narrative, and for the most part, it's very limited when it comes to the actual crucifixion. Luke says, there they crucified him. And there's no gore, there's no detail. It's left to our imagination. Um, When it comes to the uh, unrestrained wrath of God, the only thing that's there is is darkness and perhaps that's because the unrestrained wrath of god is beyond our appreciation we see darkness for half of the time that the lord was being crucified and we see his dialogue or his interaction with god my god why have you forsaken me we have the wrath of god so we have the unrestrained wrath of god we have the worst of man's sin. Um, we have the complete satisfaction of God in terms of justice. This is another facet of what was going on at, at Calvary. It's the substitution of the sinless sacrifice, the only um, person that could take the penalty of sin for somebody else because of his own perfection. And... It's the absolute satisfaction of God's requirement for justice. Another essential facet of the cross of Christ. And the last one in my mind, and as I say just at the moment, there's many others, is of course it's the ultimate expression of love. God's love for me and for you in ascending his one and only son to be our saviour. As we read through Paul's writings... Uh, One of our studies in Burma this time was Philippians, and you get a sense that Paul is continuously revisiting the appreciation he has for the Lord. In Philippians 2, we've got that very well-known, beautiful statement about the attitude of the Lord and his um, humility. Paul revisits it again, and I hadn't noticed this, but if you go to chapter three, he's talking about wanting to know more Christ, more of Christ and the resurrection and fellowship in his sufferings. And it's as though, you know, in chapter two, he's reflecting on the perfect servant and where that led him, death on a cross. And then later on, he's coming back and he's thinking of his own experience and how he has a passion to know something of Christ's sufferings. That is the reality of someone who has the cross of Christ at the centre of their own devotion and their own theology. And I just encourage us to spend time meditating on this crucial element. Verse 12 is interesting. He, He says that the only reason they do this, that's... Um, promote circumcision is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ Um, these days and in our culture the worst persecution I can think of is is embarrassment and Paul is saying they're diverting attention away from something that they're embarrassed about and they don't want to be persecuted for it Let it never be said that this central amazing truth that is at the heart of what we believe and is at the heart of the gospel message never let it be said that it's an embarrassment to us. That's perhaps in our time and culture what persecution looks like. Someone saying, really? You believe that? And Perhaps our instinct is to divert the discussion or um, divert attention away from this, which, frankly, as Paul says, is foolishness to those who are perishing. We don't want to make ourselves look foolish in the world's uh, eyes. Well, actually, we do. That's what Paul was saying. He uses this expression about boasting. that he may never boast except in the cross of Christ it's an interesting word it's the same word that's used in Ephesians 2 we know that passage very well um, you're saved by grace through faith not by work so that no man can boast it means glory or rejoice and in Ephesians 2 we, we often say you know um, True salvation is by grace through faith. So that I can't somehow point to myself and say, look how good I am. Um, It's that kind of element of rejoicing in our own accomplishments um, or deriving joy from what we've done ourselves. And Paul is saying, "If, if I'm going to boast, if I'm going to have rejoicing in my heart... If I'm going to demonstrate joy, then may it only be in the cross of Christ. It's an interesting passage in Jeremiah 9, which I'd like us to read together. It is so relevant to what we're talking about. And it's quoted a few times in the New Testament, but I've not necessarily traced it back before. (coughs) <coughs> Jeremiah nine twenty three to 26. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in all these I delight, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the desert, (coughs) in distant places. For all these nations are really uncircumcised, and even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart so even in Jeremiah's day there is a qualification about circumcision it's almost like this is a symbol of something that should be in the heart Um, and what um, Jeremiah is saying linking to Paul's references on a couple of occasions to boasting is that the thing that we should be glorying in or rejoicing in is this, that we understand and know God, that he is the Lord who exercises kindness, justice (coughs) and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. It's as though circumcision and adherence to the law is is not what god delights in (laughs) what god delights in is our appreciation of him and of course in this day of grace it's our appreciation of him through his son the lord jesus christ so the challenge to my heart is do i boast and the instruction is not to boast is not not to boast. Um, I would argue that Paul's saying boasting is a good thing, um, but there's only one reason to boast, and that is in the cross of Christ. Maybe a better word that, that makes what I've just said more make more sense is to glory or to rejoice. If I'm going to rejoice or glory in something, may it not be anything about myself, but may it entirely be about the cross of Christ coming to a conclusion what is the impact of Paul's letter we were saying that it's a letter to a fledgling group of churches so only two or three years in existence at the time it was written we do have another letter which was written to the Galatians and that's first peter also second peter you get uh, a reference in 2nd Peter that he refers to his um, first letter to them, so I think it's fairly safe to say that 1st and 2nd Peter were written to the same group which was a bigger group, but included the churches in Galatia I uh, again, 1st and 2nd Peter are full of rich doctrine but I don't see the direct reference to circumcision happening again so maybe we can conclude that Paul's letter to the Galatians found its mark and they received it they um, got rid of the um, false teachers that were going on that were were distracting them and that they were uh, back on track in terms of making the cross of Christ the central doctrine in what they Believed and taught and practiced, and I, I just take encouragement from that that the um, they were not a lost cause, but they responded to the very clear message that Paul was delivering, and it makes me also reflect on the extent to which I embrace the things that we read in this and and other letters. Um, back to Philippians 3 there's an interesting verse Philippians 3 and 16 Paul's saying to the Philippians and it's in in a passage about spiritual progress and maturity it says live up to what you've attained one of the things that we want to try and achieve by having these systematic ministry sessions on Sunday mornings is to get these truths under our belt so that we can attain them? Um, I got myself into trouble a little bit by making the point uh, while we were away in, in one of my ministries that um, spiritual maturity looks like <coughs> partially at least it looks like not asking the same questions over and over again you know if you if you kind of get stuck on a point and you keep bringing the same question over and over again it's as though. We haven't attained that truth and we continue to revisit it and question it whereas um, a mature disciple we have a question we get help you know in all kinds of different ways and we get that truth under our belt and we stop asking questions about it and we start teaching about it and i think that's what paul was encouraging the philippians to do And I think we have it in reality in the Galatians. Um, They attained this truth about salvation by grace, through faith in the work of the cross of the Lord Jesus alone, not through, through works or circumcision or anything else. And then they moved on progressively. I'd like to think that, at least to some extent, we've got Galatians under our belt. If someone was to say, so what's the book of Galatians about? Um, We could, because of our systematic teaching, have a good crack at saying, well, here's the theme, this is what it was written for, um, and here's the consequence. It's hugely beneficial for us to be able to do that in God's word for all of the books. Would that we could do it for all 66 um, and be able to say, yes, I've got um that message under my belt, I understand it, I accept it i don 't question it anymore because it 's clear, and i 'm moving forward um, and I can teach it when it comes to the cross of Christ being central to our lives and our teaching. may we be able to explain that to others, not continually be challenging it, but that we might have attained it and in the process be able to live by it and to teach it ourselves. Shall we pray?